Welcome to Hope University, week three, session three. We're so excited that uh, you guys have joined us on this journey. It's been great so far. We've had great sessions with Pastor Dale and with Dr. Steve Siemens last week. That was really a, a fascinating topic on spiritual warfare. And uh, just a reminder for everybody that we post the videos for that and the audio. Uh, that went up on our website late Thursday last week. I'm hoping to get it earlier on every Thursday, but that's what we'll do with this session as well. So um, let's go ahead and jump right into it, and then uh, we'll pray for our time. So our, our speaker and our teacher for uh, tonight is uh, Dr. Kathy Maxwell, and she is actually a Community of Hope attender. So woo, isn't that cool? Go COH. She's a Community of Hope attender, but asks that we just call her Kathy at church. So she's humble, and that's a great thing. So uh, Kathy is the Associate Professor of Biblical and Theological Studies at Palm Beach Atlantic University and the Chair of Biblical and Theological, uh, and the Chair of the Biblical and Theological Studies Department. So this is a very cool thing. Uh, she has her Bachelor of Arts from Hardin-Simmons University, her Master of Divinity from Logsdon Seminary, and her PhD from Baylor University. And uh, Kathy's research areas include New Testament studies, biblical interpretation, and the history of the Christian church. She has particular interest in biblical storytelling and is a certified through the network of biblical storytellers. Her dissertation project, Hearing Between the Lines, explores the audience's active role in receiving and telling the story of, of the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. It's kind of Dr. Luke's part one, part two. Uh, Kathy has published several articles and presented papers at regional and national meetings of the Society of Biblical Literature. Uh, she enjoys visiting with students inside and outside of class, especially mentoring women one-on-one -on -one as they seek to mature in their faith. She has been married for 23 years to Dr. Nathan Maxwell, who also teaches in the School of Ministry. And actually, uh, Dr. Nathan Maxwell will be our presenter next week. So that's a really cool thing. And uh, Kathy enjoys drinking coffee. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Everyone give a thumbs up. She's one of us. Loves coffee. Cheers. <laughs> Saw your cup of coffee there, James. Good job. And uh, she enjoys drinking coffee, baking, reading fiction, and playing cards with her two sons. Uh, did Caius and Leah, did I say that right, Kathy? You did, yeah. Yes, I got it right. Good. And uh, she's going to be presenting tonight. And uh, our topic for this evening um, is a really great topic. Uh, we're talking about the biblical basis for women in ministry. And sometimes this can be a confusing topic and uh, sometimes a divisive topic with churches. Our church takes the position that we believe uh, in women in ministry and ministry roles. Um, but sometimes people uh, need to see the biblical case for it. And so I'm just so excited for what she's going to have to share with us tonight and how she's going to open up the scriptures for us. And so just a little bit, I've gotten to know her. You guys are going to love her and you're going to love her heart. So that's a great thing. Uh, one last housekeeping thing, and then uh, Kathy will turn it over to you. Okay. All right. Um, I don't know. I'm looking down at you over here. Like you're right there on everyone else's screen. No, you're not. Um, remember, we're going to do about an hour, give or take of teaching. And then we'll do about 25 minutes to 30 minutes of questions and answers at the end. Uh, go ahead and put your questions in the chat box. Um, one thing I would say from last week, I want to remind everybody, the Q&A is for you to ask a question, not for you to share your opinion about what you think needs to be said next about the topic. Does that make sense? It's for questions, not for just opinions. So make sure if you do that, 
that would be great. So, um, and this is a great topic to ask, you know, genuine heartfelt questions with. Um, Kathy, did I miss anything else? Are we good? I don't think so. We're good. Great. Okay. All right. So, um, all right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray and um, we're going to jump on in. Kathy, would you like to pray? Or would you like me to pray for our time? Uh, you can open us, Trevor. That'd be great. All right. Great. Okay. All right. Uh, let's pray, everybody. And so uh, wherever you're at, if you're not holding your phone or your tablet, um, uh, why don't we put hands, palms, palms up like this, just as a posture of receiving and openness to the Lord. And let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would open your word and open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your law tonight. Lord, bless our friend, Kathy, and bless her teaching tonight and bless the opening of your scriptures for us to see new and wonderful things in them. Would you pour out a fresh anointing? Come, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So even though we're all on mute, let's clap in. Let's clap and welcome Dr. Kathy. Great. All right, Kathy, why don't you go ahead and start your screen share? Okay. And we'll begin, okay? Great. All right. It is an honor to be with you tonight. And um, thanks to Kathy Copan for asking if I would be willing to join in Hope University. Um, I'm excited to, um, to get to talk about this topic. It is one that I have been on a journey with this question um, just in my own personal life. And I talk to a lot of students that have this question about whether or not there's a biblical basis for women in ministry leadership. So, um, so I look forward to hearing your questions too at the end uh, of, of our evening together. Um, here's what I'd like to do. I'm gonna kind of lay some basic foundational uh, kind of defining terms and things like that, vocabulary. Uh, and then I'm going to move to showing us some examples of women, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, um, that are called to deliver God's word. And so I think it's important that we see this evidence in the biblical text that, um, that women uh, are doing this, are serving in this way. Um, but then we're going to ask the, the other side of the coin, I think, is the question, well, does the Bible restrict women from uh, filling certain roles in the church, certain roles in leadership. And so um, we we'll certain, certainly want to spend a little bit of time dealing with um, some of those questions as well. So I'm going to focus in um, on one passage from uh, the, Paul's letter of 1 Timothy at the end of our time, and then I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have um, or or at least say, I don't know, but I will find out. So, which is maybe one of the best answers <laughs> someone can give. Um, all right, so let's, let's jump into this question. Is there a biblical basis for women in ministry? I think one of the uh, first things that I want to do, as I said, is kind of define terms. Uh, what is it that we mean when we talk about calling? And what is it that we mean when we talk about ministry? And what do we mean when we say uh, ministry leadership? So uh, the first part of that question is, what does it mean to be called? And I think that we would all probably agree that the Bible tells us that God calls everyone to be in relationship with God. So that's a very general calling that we all have, actually, whether we're Christian or not, right? God is calling all of humanity into relationship with God. 
Uh, and God calls us to be in relationship with each other, healthy relationship uh, with each other. And so if we're just talking about calling, um, that's a very broad statement to talk about how, uh, whether or not God calls. Uh, but we're going to be a little bit more specific and ask the question, what does it mean to be called to ministry? Uh, the Bible has uh, a good bit of things to say about this as well. Often what we see are examples of people called uh, to minister. And so um, I, I kind of want to, for our time tonight at least, boil this idea of being called to ministry um, into what you see on your screen here, that particular people are set apart. And there's three aspects of that being set apart uh, that I think are important. Uh, people are set apart by God, first of all. And so I think uh, one of the important things to mention um, as we say that God is the one who does the calling is that a calling to ministry um, might answer the desires of a person's heart, because I think that often God puts those desires in one's heart. Um, but, the, but a calling to ministry doesn't come out of our um, desire to have recognition or to have fame or to have a reputation. And Pastor Trevor can tell you it's not out of a desire to be financially wealthy, <laughs> right? So, um, so those sort of um, selfish motiva motivations aren't part of this calling into ministry. The calling is done by God. Oftentimes, I think we see that um, something that as uh, something that's internal, that we feel God pulling us or nudging us in a particular direction. Um, and we also see many examples in scripture. And if you talk to people around you who are called into ministry, they'll tell you that God's calling was made evident by other people saying, I recognize this gift in you. I recognize that God may have called you to this particular kind of ministry. So I think it's important to say that this calling into ministry is something that's done by God. Now, to be more specific for calling into ministry, what I'd like to narrow in, to, uh, narrow in on here is that particular people are set apart by God to communicate God's word. Okay, so this is sort of receiving God's word and delivering it to uh, God's people or communicating it to God's people. And then the last part is that this communication of God's word is done for the benefit of God's people. So there's, um, there is this, this sort of vertical relationship between a person who's called to ministry, between that person and God, but there's also this horizontal relationship as well, that ministry is done for the benefit of God's, of God's people. Now, if we go with this definition, I think that it includes people who we might say are in ministry leadership positions, but, it, but it, um, it's not restricted to what we might call ordained or full-time ministry, right? So someone could do this and be a blogger or a, a curriculum, someone who develops curriculum or something like that. So when we uh, add our last qualifier to our question today, which is, is there a biblical basis for women um, to be called to ministry leadership, we're really sort of saying uh, not just someone that communicates God's word, but someone who does so um, from a position of a leader or maybe a shepherd uh, within, the, within the Christian community. So um, I think that especially once we move to this last most uh, specific description, of ministry leadership, it's important to understand that there's some differences between our current context and the context of the biblical world. We're going to talk actually a good bit about that tonight. 
Um, but I wanted to kind of start here because um, I think that when uh, we look in the Bible, we're actually not going to find a case for or examples of women or men called into full-time ministry, like what we might uh, see quite often today. Because remember that when we're reading, even when we're reading the New Testament, we have this really small window of time that we get to see this, this very, very young Christian community, maybe 60 years or so, and it's the first 60 years. So all the structures that we find very familiar, job posting, search committees, pastoral salaries, uh, mission boards, sending agencies, even church buildings, none of that existed in the time of the, of the New Testament. And so, um, so when we talk about ministry leadership today, we're going to have to uh, not look for probably specific instructions as in a guidebook on how do we know when someone's called to ministry leadership as we think of it today. Instead, what we're going to look for is patterns or trajectories uh, in the biblical text that can guide us in this discussion about what it means to be called to ministry leadership and whether or not there's a biblical basis uh, for women to be called into these roles as well. So I think that everyone's pretty com comfortable with the idea that God calls people into ministry leadership. Um, we benefit from Trevor and Dale answering that calling uh, that God has placed on their lives every Sunday. Um, but when we come to the question of whether or not women are called into ministry leadership, for some people, depending on people's background and people's experience, that question can become a bit more complicated. Um, sometimes women will uh, feel like maybe God is calling them to deliver God's word, but they're not really sure if it's allowed or not. Um, and a lot of men, I would say, have the same, you know, the same question. I would say every semester I have more than one student, male and female, who will come to my office and they'll say, women in ministry? Is this even a question that we should ask, that we can ask? Okay. Now, what's interesting is that they actually mean two different things. They may mean two different things when they come to ask this question. Some of the students are saying, of course, women cannot be in ministry leadership positions. Why are we asking this question? And other students are saying, of course, women can be in ministry leadership positions. Why are we even asking this question? And so uh, people's backgrounds have a lot to do with their perception of this, um, of this topic. Um, so maybe this is something you've wondered about. Uh, maybe you have kind of a feeling of the way that you would lean, uh, but you wonder, you know, what does scripture really say about this? Um, and so here we are tonight. So I will um, do my best to kind of explain some, some questions and some things. And then, um, like I said, I look forward to uh, hearing your other questions. But before we start and get kind of into the nitty gritty of this, I want to say something that's really important. So I want you to hear me on this. This is not um, an issue that determines your salvation. So we might say this is a secondary issue. Um, this is not a primary theological issue. Now, I say that with a little bit of hesitation because for women who do feel called to ministry leadership, this is a really important topic, but it doesn't determine one's salvation. I, I know faithful Christians who study scripture um, deeply who come out on different sides of this conversation. So um, I just wanted to sort of say that out, out front 
um, as we begin. But I think what people on both sides of the issue agree on is that what we want to do is we want to be faithful to scripture. And that's why we have the conversation. That's why we have the discussion um, and the debate. So, um, so I just wanted to sort of put that on the table as we begin, uh, as we begin tonight. So are women called to ministry leadership uh, in the Bible? Well, unfortunately, there, tend to be, there tends to be a lot of emphasis on what women cannot do, um, particularly in church discussions. So much so that I think sometimes we miss the stories that we have in the Bible of what women can do and what they were called to do. And so that's where I want to, um, that's where I want to, to start tonight. We're going to start in the Old Testament. And um, as Pastor Trevor said, I am a biblical storyteller, so I'm going to do my best to um, shorten the stories because none of these stories happen in a vacuum. There's always this pre-story and post-story that comes uh, into play that's really important. Uh, but the first uh, biblical character that I want to talk to you about is a woman named Deborah. Deborah was one of the judges in ancient Israel, and her story is found uh, in Judges chapter 4. To give you just a little bit of the backstory, by the time we get to Judges, God's people, the Hebrews, have been rescued out of slavery in Egypt. They've received the law of God, and God has moved them into the land that God had promised them. But at this point, God's people are sort of living in very segmented um, tri tribe, tribal arrangements. So there's 12 different tribes and there's different chieftains that have power in the different tribes. And sometimes the tribes fight together against common enemies, but just as often they fight against each other. And there's just kind of, there's no central government, there's no cohesion um, among the tribes at this time. One of the most notable things about the book of Judges is that we see God's people move through a cycle of behavior over and over again. Here's what would happen. God's people would be faithful to God for a while, and then they would get distracted. They would be unfaithful to God. They would worship other gods. They were sacrificed to other gods. And God would discipline God's people. And almost always in Judges, that discipline looks like allowing the Israelites' enemies to conquer them. Okay, so the en enemies of Israel would conquer them. They would oppress God's people. God's people would cry out for help. And God, being God, would answer and would send a judge to rescue God's people. Now today, when we think about Judges, we think about people in long black robes with gavels who make um, criminal and civil uh, decisions. And that's in part what judges did in the Old Testament as well, but they did a lot of other things too. They were spiritual leaders, they were military leaders um, as well. And so we see this cycle happening over and over again throughout the book of Judges. So by the time we get to Deborah in Judges chapter 4, um, we find that God's people have once again been unfaithful to God, God has allowed the Canaanites to conquer them. The people have cried out to God because of their oppression. And God has raised up Deborah, a woman, to be the next judge of Israel. This would probably have been pretty shocking to uh, not only the people of Israel uh, in Israel at that time, but to the people that heard the story of Deborah. The narrator does not try to cover this up at all. Deborah is said to be a woman who is a prophetess 
and who is a wife. So it's very clear in the text that this is a, this is a woman and that she is filling this role that up until this point has only been filled by men and after Deborah will again only be filled uh, by men. <clears throat> Deborah seems to be a very wise woman. She judges uh, people's cases. They bring their disputes to her and she uh, delivers judgment. But pretty soon after Judges chapter four begins, uh, we hear Deborah calling, uh, calling up one of the generals of the Israelite uh, army. His name is Barak. And she says to Barak, um, God says, gather your troops, attack the Canaanites. God has heard your cry and you will be victorious. So this is kind of how we expect the story to go. Now, Deborah is sort of handing over uh, leadership to Barak, the male uh, leader, except Barak waffles. Barak says, um, I'll do that, but only if you go with me. I think what Barak is saying is that I'm not going to go unless you come as a guarantee, Deborah, that God is actually with me. And so Deborah says, sure, I'll go, but you've started down this road. And what this means is that the victory, the honor of the victory of this battle will not be yours. That honor will go to a woman, which is another big plot twist uh, for this story. So Barak gathers his troops. Deborah goes with him. Deborah has to remind him again along the way, no, God really did say that you are going to be victorious if you go up in a battle against the Canaanites. And what God said, of course, uh, happens. They are victorious against the Canaanites. But the Canaanite general flees the army as it's being defeated, and he runs off into the countryside. Barak chases after Sisera, the Canaanite general, um, but the Canaanite general takes refuge in the tent of a woman called Yael. Now, he has good reason to think that he'll be safe here. Yael is not an Israelite. Yael's husband has a treaty, an alliance with the Canaanites, and so Yael welcomes the Canaanite general into her tent, gives him some warm milk. He falls asleep on the floor of her tent and Yael takes a tent peg and drives it through his temple and kills him. I was supposed to give you a warning that this was a PG-13 story, <laughs> but this is, that's most of the judges stories are like that. Um, so, so Yael, this woman who's not an Israelite, we don't, didn't know anything about her, she is the one that kind of puts the nail in the coffin of the Canaanite, uh, the Canaanite forces. So um, now that doesn't really look like many people's calling into ministry leadership. Usually it doesn't involve a tent peg um, and a hammer. But with Deborah, um, we certainly see this woman that God has set her apart. She delivers God's word, both to Barak and to the rest of the people. Um, for the benefit or for the good of God's people. Right. So, so there's the story of, of, of Deborah, um, our only female judge. Uh, the other woman in the Old Testament that I want to mention is, a, is another prophetess, uh, and her name is Huldah. She might be a little less known, uh, less well-known uh, compared to Deborah, but we find her story in two places, in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. Um, and there's a little backstory that I'll give you as I tell you the story of Huldah as well. 
in the generations after the time of the judges, God's people eventually have kings that do rule them and do centralize their, um, their government. But God's people suffer from a line, a long line of very bad kings. And in the Bible, a bad king is a king who leads people away from the worship of God. So this has been happening for a long time amongst God's people. But that line of bad kings is broken by a very young king. His name is Josiah. He becomes king when, he's, when he is eight years old. We call him the boy king. But Josiah was faithful to God and led God's people back to faithfulness to God. One of the big things that Josiah did as he's leading God's people back to faithfulness is he began to clean up the temple. You remember the temple that was in Jerusalem, God's temple? Well, it had been so long since God had been worshipped correctly that, you know, things that have to do, having to do with other gods had gotten moved in and it was in disrepair and some of the scrolls that held the word of God were sort of just laying around in different places. And I always picture like just layers of dust on everything. And so Josiah sends the priests and sends workers in to clean up the temple. When they're cleaning up the temple, they find a scroll. They don't know exactly what it is, but they open it up. And the gist of the scroll says, if you are faithful to God, you will prosper. If you're not faithful to God, you will perish. This is kind of bad news for God's people after this long line of unfaithful kings and this long time that God's people have not been faithful to God. Um, and so the, the priest and the workers take the scroll to the king, to King Josiah. And Josiah reads it and he says, this could be really bad for us if this is really the word of the Lord. Josiah says, we need verification to see if this really is the word of God. And so in order to get that verification, he doesn't go to a high priest. He doesn't go to a highly educated man. He sends the priest and the workers to the prophetess named Huldah. To the ending of the story is that Huldah looks at the scroll and she says, yes, indeed, this is the word of the God. And, you know, we're, we're in trouble. <laughs> um, but because of Josiah's faithfulness, Huldah says, God, uh, God said that God would uh, delay the discipline for their unfaithfulness because of Josiah's faithfulness and because of the people's faithfulness as they followed the boy king. So I find this story really interesting because what we find is this woman, Huldah, verifying, authenticating God's word, which is kind of backwards from the way that we typically do things today. Today, if we want to know if someone's a true prophet, we turn to the Bible um, and line up their words. But in this, in this story, we have a text that um, the king wasn't sure if it was God's word. And Huldah is a woman who delivers, receives God's word and delivers it to the people. Uh, for the good of God's people. So these are just two examples from the Old Testament. Um, in, in general, um, I would say in the, old, in the Old Testament, we do have evidence that women uh, worked alongside men in building and furnishing the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, both women and men were involved in guarding the temple gate or the entrance uh, to the temple, or standing, sorry, not guarding as in with swords, but standing watch. Uh, at the at the temple entrance. 
uh, women played music in processions, they would dance and sing at festivals, they chanted in victory celebrations, they brought offerings, they performed religious rituals, they were um, able to perform vows, make, uh, make religious vows. This image is a, of a woman named Shira, um, and she, her name appears just very briefly in a, a list in First Chronicles 7, and she is a city builder. Uh, which is, is interesting. We've got three cities that uh, the author of First Chronicles credits to Shira's building. So she's not really delivering a word from the Lord, but she's one example, another example of a woman who uh, does things that we often just assume were uh, jobs that for men, uh, particularly in the ancient world. It's interesting to say that, see that there's no, actually no evidence in the Old Testament that women and men worshiped separately or that they served separately. Um, this community seems to have worshiped and served uh, together. Now, if we shift to the New Testament, <clears throat> um, we, have, we have maybe more examples in the New Testament. I've chosen just a few to highlight for you. Um, the first is, and I'm gonna jump ahead to the end of Jesus's life, although I could use some examples from Jesus's life. Um, I want to jump to the, maybe one of the best examples, which is the women at the tomb. All four of our Gospels, um, as they're telling the story of Jesus's resurrection, they agree that women were the first ones to get to tell the good news of Jesus's resurrection. Um, it's kind of surprising, actually, that all four of the Gospels, well, Mark, I guess, is kind of debatable, but the women are the first ones there, and they're the first ones to see that Jesus has been raised. Um, and it's interesting that the Gospels agree on this, because in the ancient world, the testimony of women was not highly regarded. So you couldn't testify in a court of law. Um, but uh, here we have this, this incredibly momentous event and women have the chance to share um, about it first. So um, in some senses, women are the first evangelists, right? They're the first ones to get to proclaim Jesus's resurrection. And these are women that uh, loved Jesus, that served um, alongside Jesus. That my next example is actually an example from the mouth of a man from Peter's uh, sermon at Pentecost. This is in Acts chapter 2 as the church is just beginning. And uh, Peter quotes from the prophet Joel, the Old Testament prophet Joel. And uh, as he quotes Joel, he's, uh, he's quoting Joel and he says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. In the next verse, he says, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And so we get this uh, comment that both sons and daughters will be filled with God's spirit um, in order to prophesy. And I should say, um, we could say a lot about prophecy and about pro prophets, um, but at the very sort of foundational level, a prophet is someone who hears a word from God and delivers it to God's people. So when we're talking about your sons and daughters will prophesy, we're not necessarily talking about like telling the future. What we're talking about is hearing God's word and delivering it to, to God's people. And from the very beginnings of the Christian church, we have um, this, this, this statement that is spoken over the beginnings of the church that both men and women will be involved uh, in this endeavor. So the church continues to grow 
um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we meet some other women who lead in ministry service in the Christian community. This is a depiction of Priscilla there on your left and her husband Aquila. We find their story in Acts 18. Um, they're actually mentioned six times um, in the Bible, and uh, in four of those times, Priscilla is actually mentioned first. So instead of Aquila and Priscilla, they're referred to as uh, Priscilla and Aquila, right? which sounds normal to us because we're used to talking about Priscilla and Aquila, but it would be like if I introduced um, Vic and Kathy Copan as saying, here's my, my good friends, Mrs. and Mr. Copan, which would sound a little odd, right? Um, in the ancient wor world, when, a, when two people are listed like that, often the person mentioned first is kind of perceived as, as the leader of the pair, the one that takes the lead in a particular, um, in a particular task. So uh, Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. They were Christians from Rome, and they were good friends of Paul. Uh, and in particular, in Acts chapter, chapter 18, they encounter a man named Apollos in the city of Ephesus. And Apollos is a phenomenal preacher, but he only knows the story of the gospel up through John the Baptist, the baptism of John. He doesn't know about Jesus's life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Apollos is missing a lot um, of what's happened between uh, John the Baptist and Acts 18. And so Priscilla and Aquila teach him all this stuff that he's been missing. Um, and so when Priscilla is mentioned first here, mo uh, many people take this to mean that she kind of takes the lead in teaching um, Apollos uh, about Jesus and about the coming of the, of the Holy Spirit. Um, so there's a couple of examples from the New Testament as well. The last, last bit I, is kind of a, a basket of examples, I guess. Um, we do have some evidence from early churches that women had leadership roles. And Romans 16, which is the last chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, is this little treasure trove of finding um, interesting information about women who served in the early, earliest Christian communities. Unfortunately, we don't know a whole lot about their stories, about what they did, um, but Paul mentions them in this greetings section in Romans uh, chapter 16. The first woman that I have um, listed on your screen there is Phoebe. Um, Phoebe is described at the beginning of Romans 16 um, as a servant. Sometimes it's translated servant, sometimes it's translated assistant. Um, the, the word is actually the word that we often translate deacon. So Phoebe, who was, uh, who was a deacon, um, I, I want you to sort of put aside your um, contemporary understanding of deacon, though. Remember, all the structures that we're used to weren't there yet. Um, but this term um, diakonos, you can hear the English word deacon that comes from that Greek word diakonos. Um, it means someone who is identified for special ministerial service to the Christian community, okay, which is a little bit more than just saying Phoebe, a servant, right? So she's, she's identified as having the sort of special ministerial role uh, in the community. Uh, most people, many people think that uh, Phoebe was actually the one to carry the letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church to Rome. Uh, and she delivered that letter. And for us, that sort of sounds like a mail, uh, mail delivery person, right? Puts it in the mailbox and then walks away. But in the ancient world, the person that delivered the letter 
almost always had um, a really active role in the composition of the letter. They would deliver the letter orally, because remember, most people in this context are not going to be able to read. They would deliver the letter or orally, and then they would most likely answer questions about the letter as well. So Phoebe may have played a really important role in the delivery of the letter to the Romans. I've got Junia listed here as well. Uh, Junia is uh, mentioned in the greetings in Romans 16 uh, as a fellow apostle of Paul's, which is uh, quite interesting that we might have a, a female apostle mentioned here. The word apostle means one who is sent, um, uh, but it's interesting that, that Junia gets, gets specifically mentioned here as, as an apostle, one who is, uh, and not just an apostle, but one who has great respect among the apostles. Um, there are other women also mentioned in Romans 16, and uh, in fact, there's nine altogether. And of those nine, five of them, Paul mentions specifically as being ministry colleagues. So I think a lot of times we look at Paul as someone who uh, restricted women's role in ministry. But in Romans chapter 16, he seems very open and um, almost casual about the role that these women played. So it's, it's interesting to me that the women are there. And then it's also interesting that Paul doesn't say, you know, watch out, this is an exception to the rule. I'm just gonna mention these people. He just sort of mentions Phoebe and Junia and the others um, in a sort of matter of fact way uh, at the end of the letter. So I feel like I just blew through the Old and the New Testament. There are many more examples, much more that we could say, um, but in the interest of time, um, I'll stick with these for now. Um, I think that what we see in the examples of these women is that um, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about cultural expectations uh, in the ancient world in a moment, but what we see in these women is we see them acting in ways that their cultures did not expect them to act. Instead, they're acting in ways that God called them to act. And in many cases, it was risky. Right? They didn't know what was going to happen. Um, Deborah went out into battle with Barak, for crying out loud. Um, it was a risky thing to answer God's call, but they did answer this call to receive the word from the Lord and then to communicate it to God's people for the benefit of God's people. So uh, that's what we see, I think, in these, uh, these biblical examples. Now, the next question that we would ask, I think, is the other side of the coin, which is not only do we have examples of women in ministry, but does the Bible restrict the roles that women can, can play in ministry, can fill in ministry? And to begin this part of the discussion, um, it's really important to talk about context. So um, just looking at these images that are on your screen, I think it's easy to see that there are differences between the world of the Bible uh, and our context today. Um, I'll point out a couple that I think are, are pretty important and that have particular bearing on this discussion. Uh, one is that we speak different languages. So the Bible uh, is written in Hebrew, almost all in Hebrew and in Greek. Um, and when we translate it into English, um, it's, it's a challenge to really kind of try to understand what it is that the biblical authors were saying in their original languages. Now, um, please, I, I don't mean to um, make anybody worried about that. Um, we have very well-trained scholars who are faithful Christians who are 
listening to the guidance of the Holy Spirit who translate the Bible for us. So, I, so I'm a firm believer, 100%, that we can trust the Word of God that we have in English. But it's important to recognize that we're talking about two different, two different languages, or three, I suppose. Um, secondly, the cultural position and perception of women is very different when we compare the times of the Bible to our time today. Um, What's interesting is I think that we, we almost always assume that in the ancient world, um, men thought that women were weak and ignorant and unintelligent and would probably make you sin, right? All these terrible things and that they weren't really valued any more than property. Um, and in, in some cases, maybe even in many cases, this is true to some extent. Um, or at least it would feel that way to us, right? If we could jump in a time machine and go back there, we would say, wow, this is very, very different, the way that people perceived women. Um, but if we uh, look more closely at the context in the Bible, we're going to talk about the context in the city of Ephesus tonight, particularly. Um, but we'll see that, that this is actually kind of varied in the ancient world. In some places, women had more responsibility and more freedom than in other places and at different times. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize that while women were perceived very differently in ancient times than how we perceive women today, um, it's not sort of a one-size-fits-all, right? Uh, just like women are treated differently now, they were treated differently back then, uh, depending on the context. Uh, and the third thing, so language, uh, social position, and expectation. And the third thing I would mention uh, in particular is that opportunities for women were very different in the ancient world than they are today in particular education. Um, the access that women had to education was very limited. We do have some examples of, and this would always be wealthy elite women who do have um, an admirable education, um, but they really are the exception. For the average woman, education was not within her sphere of expectation. Um, Jewish women in particular would receive instruction. They could learn at the synagogues uh, alongside men, but they wouldn't receive the same amount of training and the same kind of training that men would. Um, for example, from a young age, Jewish boys were taught Torah, um, but Jewish girls were not. So even from the very sort of beginning, there were some um, dif differences in how men and women were, were educated. So those differences are really important. The question of context is really important when we start asking questions about does the Bible restrict the role that women can have uh, in ministry? So for my example tonight, I decided to just jump right into a really weird one. Uh, and um, you, it'll sound familiar to you. And then the last part of this passage is one that we usually just sort of skip over because nobody knows what to do with it. Um, and I've pulled this, this example from one of Paul's letters. It's letter of 1 Timothy. So if you guys want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. I'll have the text up on the screen for you as well. Um, more than anyone else, probably, Paul's teaching is often interpreted as limiting uh, women's roles in the church. Um, and so I've, I've chosen this, this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 2. And the um, passage in question that we're going to look at is verses 8 through 15. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Um, I actually dug around for an NIV. Isn't this weird that I don't have an NIV at home? But I have my ESV. So if it reads a little bit different from what you've got in front of you, that, that's why. But when I put the text up on the screen, I pulled the NIV text. So um, you can follow along there. 
All right, so First Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. This is Paul writing. Do you have that slide yet? Do you have that slide? Is it turned I free? do. It's, um, the next one will just, I don't have the okay, full text you. on there. Sorry. Okay. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Keep going. No, no worries. No, that's okay. All right, so starting in verse 8. I desire then, Paul says, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness. She should be adorned with good works. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet because Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor or a sinner. Verse 15, and here's the weird verse. Yet the woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in love, faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, so we've got that passage. And so just briefly, while I switch the sli slide, think in your head, what's, what sounds odd to you? about this passage. I mean, so we'll just sort of name the elephant in the room. The whole idea that someone could be saved through childbearing is odd. We'll address that. Um, but are there other things that sound a little odd to you uh, in this passage? So just think about that for a moment. When we start tackling a passage like 1 Timothy 2, uh, context is really important. Um, basically what's happening here, especially in verses uh, eight and nine, Paul seems to be countering cultural stereotypes of men and women. So what Paul is saying in verse eight is that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And Probably the flip side of that, of that is a stereotype that all men are aggressive and loud mouths and always spoiling for a fight. So Paul's saying, you, you don't have to be that way. This is what I want you to do. Um, and on the other hand, women, um, we seem to be seeing the flip side of this, that all women are shallow and they're prissy and they only think about clothes and makeup and whether or not they're going to break a nail. Right? But Paul says, no, I want you to not worry about your clothes and about your hair and about your jewelry. I want you to put on good works, which is what a woman who professes godliness should be known for, right? Rather than for her wardrobe or her jewelry. So I think that verses eight through 10 in particular here um, are calling, I think in these verses, Paul is calling both women and men out of cultural stereotypes. Okay, so no, nobody likes to be stereotyped, but men, you've probably been stereotyped that you're always aggressive and loud mouths, and women, you've probably been stereotyped that, you know, you're uh, weaker and that you, all you care about is your appearance. So Paul is saying you don't have to be defined by those cultural stereotypes. Instead, Paul calls both men and women to holy habits, right? Holy habits of prayer and peacemaking and good works. So that's how Paul's discussion starts here. 
But then in verse 11 and following, we get into kind of into the weeds a little bit when Paul starts talking about women being quiet, quiet and being submissive and not being allowed to teach and things like that. So I want to, um, with that sort of background of verses 8 and 9 and 10, I want to move into um, a little bit more detailed discussion of the next uh, few verses. So when we look at verses 11 and 12, um, Paul says, let a woman learn in quietness or silence, some translations say, with full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to give orders to a man, but she should be quiet or silent. So I've kind of highlighted some of the words that are important in this passage as we look to see what's going on. And the first question we're going to ask is, what does Paul permit? What does Paul allow? Um, so Paul allows a woman to learn, which is pretty interesting for the first century context. Um, and he allows a woman to learn in quietness or silence. Now, I've put the Greek word up for you here. You say it, heitsuxia. Um, uh, and what this, this word is sometimes translated quietness, sometimes silence, sometimes um, undisturbed or without disturbance. One interesting thing about this passage uh, for the translations that translate this Greek word silence in verses 11 and 12 is that if you back up to chapter 2, verse 2, the same word is used. So back, back up in your text to chapter 2, verse 2. Paul's talking about how um, you should pray for leaders. So he says you should pray, verse 2, for kings and all those who are in high positions so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. That word quiet is the same Greek word. So we probably don't want to translate it silence because it would be odd for Paul to say that he wanted the community to live a silent life in verse 2. Um, so probably we'd be more, more along the lines of, of quietness perhaps. But in verse 2, what Paul seems to say is he says, pray for those in leadership so that we can be undisturbed. Right? We want to live a peaceful and an undisturbed life, a tranquil life. And so I wonder if that might be a better translation of this word as we move into verses 11 and 12 as well. Let a woman le learn undisturbed. So don't disturb a woman when she's learning. Um, and then at the end of the verses, she should be quiet or silent, or perhaps we should say she should be undisturbed, right? She should be left in, left in peace. The next uh, word that is, is useful to look at here is that the woman should learn uh, undisturbed with full submission. Now, a lot of times I think we have sort of assumed that this means that the woman's going to learn in submission to the man that is teaching her. But notice that Paul actually doesn't say that. Paul just says that the woman should learn with full submission. Now, the whole letter of 1 Timothy is about sound doctrine. So it's about learning correctly the things of God. So, um, so our, our verse here doesn't preclude, it doesn't uh, say that Paul is not talking about learning in full submission to the man that's teaching her. But if we take it within the context of 1 Timothy, it might be better to understand Paul to say, the woman should learn undisturbed, fully submitted to the doctrine that she's learning, right? Fully submitted to um, the correct teaching that she is, is learning. And in that case, I think we would probably say that both men and women should learn in full submission. Um, so you might think of it less as sitting at the foot of, of a man, although that 
may physically have been what is happening, and more sitting at the foot of scripture or sitting at the foot of Jesus or sitting at the foot of God as, as we learn, as the women learn correct doctrine. Okay, the next thing to think about in, this, in these same verses is what does Paul not permit? Well, Paul does not permit a woman to teach, first of all, or to give orders or to assume authority, assume authority over a man. So these are two things that Paul just says he does not allow. For the first one, to teach, he doesn't allow the woman to teach. Uh, there's no translation uh, fuzziness there. That means to teach. But remember our context. Remember the access to education that women had. Remember that this community in Ephesus um, is welcoming in new members uh, all the time. So in this context, we're probably not stretching too far to say that the women have not been um, have not received theological education, right? They haven't been steeped in Torah. Um, they are just now learning what it means to follow Christ. So if that's the case, then probably they ought not be the teachers in the community yet if they're just now learning. So if we think about this situation in Ephesus, and also given the fact that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy because Paul himself can't be there, to see what, how the women are learning and what they're learning. Paul just says, uh, or it's implied, but Paul is saying, just tell the women not to teach. And maybe in parenthesis, for now, right? Until they, until they have been taught what it is to be a Christian, what it is to follow Christ, um, until we've addressed this problem, I, I'm not allowing a, a woman to teach uh, in Ephesus. Now, the next uh, thing that Paul does not permit uh, which is to give orders to or to assume authority over a man, needs a little bit more explanation. I have my eye on the time. I'm going to try to move through this as, as quickly as I can. Um, this word is tricky um, because uh, it is only used once in the New Testament. So we can't say, oh, Paul uses this word in this way or other authors use it in that way. Um, this, this word, authentane, uh, is only used one time. So sometimes in other literature, it's translated as um, to usurp authority, sort of to grab authority away from someone, uh, to assume authority, to give orders to. Uh, sometimes it's just simply translated to have authority over uh, someone. Um, so we have a lot of, we have several options, but we don't have a lot of evidence from the New Testament to tell us exactly what Paul means here. Um, given the rest of scripture and even Paul's own letters, we talked about Phoebe and Junia um, and we saw other examples. Given the rest of scripture, it's probably not just the very general have authority over. So Paul probably wouldn't say, I don't permit a woman to have authority over a man because we have examples of teach Priscilla teaching Apollos and, um, and Phoebe um, as a deacon and Junia as an apostle. So probably they had some sort of authority, um, at least in Christian communities. So if we take that option off the table, um, we, we still need to narrow it down a little bit more and understand what Paul means when he, said, when he says this here. And I think in order to do that, we've got to know a little bit more about Ephesus. So Timothy is the leader of the church in Ephesus. Paul is writing to him and giving him instructions. In the ancient world, Ephesus was the home of the temple to Artemis. Uh, Artemis was a, a goddess that was um, 
very popular in this area. Um, her other name is Diana. So maybe you know of Diana, the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of fertility. Um, and so the temple to Artemis was this focal point of Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was made of marble. Um, see, I think, yeah. So here's ruins of the temple of Ephesus. It was made of marble. It was like seven stories high. In that picture, you can barely see the people right in front of some of those columns. Um, there were 127 columns that were 65 feet high. It was 225 feet wide, 425 feet long. It dominated the skyline of Ephesus, just visually. Um, it was also a center of religious life, economic life, social life. The, the cult of Artemis was at the heartbeat of the city of Ephesus. Now this temple, um, to Artemis, who was a goddess, right, was controlled by um, a, a priesthood of female virgins. Men uh, uh, assisted them in uh, the leadership of this cult, uh, but only if they were castrated. Okay. And then under the, the virgins and the castrated men were thousands of um, priestess slaves that were all part of the, the inner workings of uh, the cult of Artemis. So in Ephesus, virgins, to be a female virgin was highly valued. And so women were actually encouraged to not get married, because of course married women soon are not virgins, um, and not to bear children. Because in the ancient world at least, one follows right after the other, right? So, um, so, so this is an important bit of information to have as we think about Paul saying, I don't allow women to assume authority over a man. So, so in this context in Ephesus, women actually held extraordinary power, particularly within the cult of Artemis. Um, the, 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 the religious focus around Artemis was controlled by women who only shared power with men if they were castrated. So think about that particular context. What sort of relationships would develop between women and men in Ephesus around the cult of Artemis, right? What, um, what would be the attitudes of men? What would be the attitudes of women in the city of Ephesus? What would be the attitudes of women toward men, right? So this, the highest uh, sort of religious office in the city were held by women who had no ties to men, fully independent uh, of men. So if we think about that context, this, when Paul says to Timothy in Ephesus, I don't allow women to assume authority or to usurp authority um, from a man, I think it takes on a slightly different tone because they're looking at the priestesses of, of Artemis and how they, um, how they have grasped authority um, in, the city, in the city of Ephesus. And so I think what Paul is saying to the women and to the men here in 1 Timothy is that the Christian community is different than this. Um, and in fact, I can't help but sort of hear Jesus's teaching from Mark when Jesus says, you see other people, they like to lord their authority over each other. But Jesus told his disciples, it will not be that way with you. Right, so when Jesus or when Paul is talking about usurping or grasping authority, uh, yanking that away, he says that's not the way the Christian community is going to operate. Um, and he's giving that specific instruction to, uh, to women who may have been used to being able to do that, uh, given their position in, in Ephesus. 
So if you would allow me to sort of make a few edits there, I'm not, I'm not changing scripture. I'm just changing a bit of the translation here. I think this might communicate a little bit more of what Paul's saying. Let a woman learn undisturbed with full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, but she should be undisturbed. So if we understand these verses in this way, it seems like Paul is actually promoting the theological education of women here, right? I, I want women to learn undisturbed. But without that education, Paul says, women shouldn't be assuming teaching roles, even if they've been used to having these roles of, of power in Ephesus. Um, and women shouldn't seek power, the power that positions of authority give to them. The Christian community is not like this. Um, I think is part of what Paul is trying to communicate. Paul's going to continue his argument in the next couple of verses by giving an Old Testament example. Okay? So in verses 13 and 14, he says, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So we tend to read this, this, these two verses and we say, well, Adam's sort of getting a pass here, right? Is Eve that took the fruit, Eve that was tempted by the serpent, Eve that gave the fruit to Adam to eat. Um, and so it sounds like Eve is, is really the, 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 the bad guy here. But if we look closely at what Paul is saying, and if we look closely at the story in Genesis 3, what we'll, what we'll see is that Paul, yes, Paul is saying the woman was deceived, the woman became a sinner. But we don't have to look very far to see that um, Adam also became a sinner, right? Men also became, became sinners. So our humanity as a whole uh, falls in Genesis chapter 3, away from God's good design. Um, so yes, absolutely, Eve was deceived. But what is it that Paul is saying about Adam? Um, I, I know we're short on time, so later, if you want to flip back and take a look at Genesis 3, read it very, 2 and 3, read very carefully the sequence of events. God, uh, in chapter 2, plants the Garden of Eden, forms the man, in chapter 2, the woman is not yet formed, when God places Adam in the garden and says, you can eat the fruit of any tree in the garden except for the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat the fruit from that tree, you will surely die. So, so Adam receives this direct instruction from the Lord before the woman is actually created. Um, when the serpent encounters the woman in Genesis chapter 3, the woman has learned something about this. So I would assume God or, or Adam has taught her. Um, and because when the serpent says, did God really say that you can't eat the fruit from any tree in the garden? The woman says, oh no, we can eat the fruit from any tree in the garden except the one in the middle of the garden. Um, we're not supposed to eat from that. We're not even supposed to touch it or else we'll die. So there's a little bit of an addition to what God originally said to Adam. So I don't want to split hairs too finely on that. But what Paul seems to be saying about Adam is that Adam was not deceived. Adam was not tricked by the serpent. Adam knew exactly what God had commanded. Adam chose to sin. There was no deception there. Adam isn't deceived. Adam sins deliberately. And when God comes back around in chapter three and is, is outlining the consequences of the sins of the humans, um, God specifically says to Adam in chapter three seventeen, 
you ate the fruit about which I commanded you. Specifically, God says, remember, I taught you about that and you still ate it. Um, now, as I said, Eve certainly bears responsibility and, and Paul, um, Paul is clear about that in this verse. But I think what Paul's doing with this Old Testament reference is he's using it as an example of, look what happens when women aren't properly educated. When they don't have a good theological education, they're easily deceived. And I would say that goes for men as, as well, right? So he's using this as an example to argue that women have to take responsibility to learn and those who have the knowledge have to take responsibility to teach those who want, who want to learn. All right, the last verse. We don't really know what to do this, with this one. Yet, Paul says, the woman will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty, the weirdest part of this passage. But I think that what Paul's doing is he's building on that allusion to Genesis, right? So he's talking still about this, um, about what happens in Genesis chapter three. There are consequences to the sin of the man and the woman. Um, and uh, if you remember the, the two consequences uh, for the woman, first of all, is pain and childbirth, right? So God says, you'll have pain, you'll have pain in childbirth, um, which is the main one that we want to talk about. And then he also said, God also says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And I just want to mention that I think that it's very interesting that that sort of ruling over you language is not part of what God created humans to be. The ruling over you language is the consequence of sin. And so I think that's a really important part of, of Genesis chapter three. But there is another consequence for the woman, which is pain and childbearing. And in the ancient world, even more than today, particularly in our context, um, childbirth was extremely risky. There's a high mortality rate for the women, high mortality rate for the infants, um, it was very dangerous to bear children, and yet women have been doing this for uh, millennia. Um, but this pain in childbirth was, was part of the consequence, right? Part of, of the curse that we see in, in chapter 3 of Genesis. So the word I want to focus on real quickly here is the word for saved, sozo. Most of the time in Christian vernacular, when we say uh, are you saved? What we mean is, um, you know, did someone not, did someone bring you safely out of a dangerous situation? What we mean is, are you saved? Do you have eternal life, right? Are you saved from eternal death? But in the, in the Bible, the verb sozo, this word for saved, it's used to mean several different things. So you can see the options for the uh, translations there on your, um, on your screen. Um, and then the, the last one there, safe from eternal death, was, which is certainly an option for Sozo and a good one. Um, but it would be very odd for Paul to be giving women a different avenue toward salvation from eternal death than he gives to everyone else, right? So, so we probably can take off the table the idea that women can find eternal life through having children. Okay, so we'll just, we'll take that one off the table. And um, that causes all sorts of problems that we can just shuffle off the board. Um, so what is Paul saying here? Well, it seems like um, Paul is not referring to, to eternal salvation. He's probably not even referring to being um, brought out of a harmful situation safely, because certainly for Christian women, um, the danger of childbirth is not lessened. They're just as much at risk as anyone else. Um, 
many people think that maybe the last option in that longer list on your screen there, <clears throat> to be prospered, is maybe the best option for what Paul is saying here. Yet a woman will be prospered through childbearing, provided that they, probably the mother and father, continue in faith and love and holiness uh, with, with modesty. Now, if we're, um, if we're remembering the context of the Ephesians, what Paul is saying is that it's actually a good thing to get married. It's a good thing to have children. It's a good thing to raise a family. In fact, you will be prospered through the raising of a family. Um, Paul is arguing that Christians should build strong families. Christians should give life to children. It's an honorable work that's blessed by God. Um, and so I think that, that this very puzzling verse is, um, is basically one of Paul's arguments for not being enslaved to what culture said uh, in ancient Ephesus, that it's better to remain a virgin, to remain unmarried, to remain childless, um, but actually it's better to raise a family. Um, in faith and love and holiness with modesty. So um, all of these things to say <clears throat> that I think that when we're talking about 1 Timothy 2, that the point of this passage in Paul is actually not to limit or restrict women. Instead, it's a very freeing passage that says to both women and men, you do not have to be restricted and confined and defined by what culture says that you should be because you're a man or because you're a woman. Instead, you are free to answer God's call on your life. Um, and I think that that's such an important, um, important message for us today. So the question we started with to kind of wrap everything up is, is there a biblical basis for women in ministry leadership? I think that we see in scripture um, a trajectory that we get set on that says that women and men don't have to be defined by what culture says they should be, what culture says, uh, what roles culture says they should fill, but instead that it's God's calling who def uh, that defines who we are, how we act, and what we do. In the Bible, there are specific instances where women were not allowed to lead, um, but we don't find a universal restriction for women in ministry leadership. Instead, I think what we find are specific examples of women who were set apart by God um, to deliver God's word for the benefit of God's people. Um, and so if we take their examples and the teaching of Paul and the prophecy of Peter at Pentecost, that your sons and your daughters would prophesy, I think that the answer to our question has to be yes, that, that there is a biblical basis for women in ministry leadership. Um, but that sounds very simple. And I know there are lots of other questions and there are lots of other passages that we sh could talk about. So um, I have taken more time than I should have, but I hope that we'll have time for a couple questions. Um, I'd love to hear from you guys. Yeah, you did not take more time than you should have. Okay. Uh, one comment, um, I almost interrupted you to tell you this, but then you're on a roll. And so I, I didn't want to interrupt you again, like I accidentally, accidentally did earlier. One person chimed in, uh, Joy Lee, who's actually on her staff. Mm -hmm. is just a delightful friend she wrote please give her more time this is too good to be stopped. <laughs> okay. so uh you you are just fine you're just fine um so thank you so much let's go ahead and um can we uh uh yeah lots of people are saying thank you that that's a great thing can we go ahead and stop the screen share so we can see oh yes sorry yes faces? no you're great 
And uh, we have a couple a couple good questions so far. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me see here. Just wait one second, everybody. Let me adjust a couple quick things. All right, great. Um, okay, so uh, let me see. Let me pull, pull up the chat again. All righty. So um, the, a couple great questions have come in. And so what I encourage everybody to do, I know a lot of you are listening intently. If you have a question, go ahead and post that in there now. We might not get to all of them. That's okay. Uh, but if you have a question, go ahead and submit that. I know oftentimes some of you submit questions after you've heard everything. So now's the time to do that. But we have a couple ones that already have been submitted. Um, let me scroll through these. Um, first off, this is a great one from Nadia Mossberg, um, who's a wonderful partner in our church. Uh, she wrote, uh, are there any resources that you would recommend for somebody interested in studying this topic further on their own? Yes, uh, definitely. In fact, one of the things as we were beginning, I thought, oh, I should have put a list together. Um, I will, I'll do that and send it to, to you, Trevor, to Kathy, and, and maybe we can distribute it. Um, one of, oh dear, hold on. You can't <laughs> see it because of my background. Uh, there's, a, there's a book called Now That I'm Called um, by Kristen Padilla. Um, let me see, I can put her name in the chat real quick. Oh, if you if you send me the link to it, we'll put it on the website. I still have to put up Dr. Okay. PowerPoints from last week, and we can put okay. the PowerPoint as well if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, definitely. And, um, we can put that up. Yeah, and another resource too would be, um, there's a book, it's a, kind of more of a reference book. It's called Discovering Biblical Equality, but it has um, essays on um, many of the different passages that people ask questions about, um, and it also... Um, uh, has examples from church history as well. So it kind of gives a broader spectrum of that debate. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Um, here's another question. This is, uh, some of these are really just fascinating. Some are um, from the scriptures particularly, and some are broader about women in ministry in general. Mm -hmm. um, so here's um, a really thoughtful one from Rosemary. She asks, what is the percentage of women in seminaries today? So mm. to the best of your knowledge from your context, <laughs> Because it's, it's not like we're, you know, omniscient and know the data from all seminaries everywhere. But uh, from your context, what do you see uh, in higher education and in ministry preparation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I feel like I should at least know the percentage from our seminary at PBA, which I don't know off the top of my head. Maybe Vic knows and can help me. But um, uh, I would say that, uh, that I see a positive change these days in the number of women in seminary. Uh, I was the only female in my MDiv uh, period. So from the whole, the whole, everyone enrolled in the program, I was the only woman when I started. Um, and even in my PhD, when I was studying biblical studies at Baylor, um, <clears throat> I was the only woman in my entering class. Um, I think that that's changing now. It's been 20 years. Um, I think that it's changing and that there are a lot more women who are being able to uh, take advantage of that. Uh, particularly, I would say in the, in the Methodist con context that uh, women are often um, um, taking advantage of that theological education. So I'm encouraged. Mm -hmm. That's great. Hold on, just, just one moment. We had somebody accidentally try to screen share just a second. No worries. <laughs> I'm listening and I'm clicking furiously. No, I know. <laughs> okay, um, I think that's great. Um, with that, that person asked that question, um, yeah, I'm only, you know, you know your context from PBA and where you've gone to school before. I only mm -hmm. know the context from Asbury. Mm -hmm. And I just quickly Googled um, at the very beginning of our talk mm -hmm. um, about their percentages. I think their totals are they have just a little bit over a thousand men enrolled 
and about 650 women enrolled. Okay. Mm-hmm. So good. Good. That. Okay. Um, let me see here. Um, are you ready for a little bit of a hardball question? Okay. All right. I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is more. This is more like a pastoral application. Okay. Uh, more than like a <clears throat> Greek, you know, mm-hmm. historical background type of a thing. Um, but one person asked, it seems Deborah and Priscilla and others have the support and encouragement of their husbands. Mm-hmm. What about women in ministry who do not have the support of their husbands for their ministry? What would you have to say about that? I would say that, that it's a hard place. Uh, it's a hard place to be. We turn to Paul's letters, as I said, often to kind of give us clues about the different roles that people have within the Christian community. One of the things as I've studied Paul, uh, one of the clearest messages that I hear from Paul is a desire for unity in the church. Um, And so a desire for unity within the church, a desire for unity within families. Um, Paul talks a lot about submission, which is a word we don't tend to really like much today. Um, And we've tended to take that word and apply it only to women. But what Paul teaches is mutual submission, that within the body of Christ, men and women are to submit to each other. Mm. Um, And so I think that that and that question is an excellent question. And it's one that each person, I think, has to walk through carefully and prayerfully um, and often with a lot of of grief. Um, But I think that God is faithful to fulfill the calling that God has put on one's life. Um, and that, uh, but that in the midst of that journey, we can't lose sight of that call to unity and mutual submission. Mm. Uh, that's, a, that's a tough one. Tough one, but wise words. Um, we have another question here. This is interesting. Uh, one of our partners, James, says, what's up, James? Good to see you. Um, he wrote, does this appear to be a point where Paul is quote, opening the door, unquote, for women in ministry. What do you think about that? Uh, I think that um, in some ways, I think that for Paul, there's not a question of whether or not there's a door. Um, Maybe for in the Romans 16 example, where he just sort of says, you know, this apostle and that fellow worker and this, you know, this one set aside for ministry. Um, Within the Christian community, I wonder if, you know, if Paul himself is not really um, wondering if, if a door needs to be opened or not, that it's just sort of the way things are. Um, but certainly within the cultures that the Christian community is interacting with, there's some navigation that has to be done. And I think that's what Paul's doing here in First Timothy. I also think that's what Paul is doing in First Corinthians when Paul says talks about head coverings and praying and prophesying and things like that. I think he's uh, he's concerned with um, bringing shame on the Christian community, and that that's part of what's kind of what's what's going on there. Mm-hmm. I, I should say maybe I'll just toss this in there. One of the verses that Paul, or one of the things that Paul says in Galatians, is that in Christ there's no longer Greek nor Jew, uh, male nor female, uh, slave nor free, and that all are one in Christ. Um, and I think that that's, that's an important thing to keep in mind in Paul's, Paul's teaching. But I don't think that Paul is doing away with differences between genders. I think that what Paul's saying is that we are different as men and women, and we are called by God, and that that's a beautiful thing. Mm, good word. Yeah. I didn't cut you off there, did I? 
nope, I'm done. I was just enjoying what you said. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, all right, here's another great question. Um, this might be more of a question from your studies with church history. Um, it might be extra biblical and just from you know, our knowledge of the early church. Um, okay. Janet wrote in, do we have any info if these active women in ministry also had children? And there was a couple question marks oh. behind it, as in, oh my, there's a challenge there. Yes. Well, you know, Paul says, uh, if you can stand not to get married, it's better not to get married because then your attention is divided. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, so I would say that children divide your attention. So uh, yes, in that sense, yeah, in that sense, um, it's a, it is a challenge, but, um, but families are loved by God and created by God. So we, um, I say that with a bit of tongue-in-cheek. Um, but yes, women uh, who, uh, in, even in early church history, and you notice today the examples that I gave from the Old Testament, they are prophetesses and wives. And mm. in the ancient world, in almost every case, uh, to be a wife is also to be a mother. Um, there's, no, there's no pill, right? There's no contraception that actually works in the ancient world. So, um, so yes, I would say these, these women had households, they had families, um, and they are um, also doing, doing God's work. Yeah. Um, some Great. of the early, there's some early accounts of Christian martyrs, um, uh, mm. Felicity and uh, Perpetua, Perpetua and Felicity. Mm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and now I'm, I'm reaching back into the shadowy parts of my memory, but Perpetua, I believe, was pregnant when she was put in jail for being a Christian. Um, she gives birth to her son in prison uh, and hands her son over to her father and goes to her death in the arena. And so, um, and so she's just one example of, of a woman who was certainly a mother, but who gave her life in ministry. Wow. Thanks, I remember reading about that or reading about her account in seminary and I missed that detail entirely. <laughs> it's probably because I'm a man. <laughs> wow. That's, um, gosh, that's powerful. Ah, yeah, it takes my, that takes my breath away. Um, uh, let's see. I think we have one or two other questions and then we'll close out our time. Um, uh, one comment, one person said, as a Sunday school teacher and children's leader, this is very encouraging and supportive. I pray that more men will step into uh, more. I think she meant women. More women will step into these roles. And I'm glad we are valid. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, ooh, we have a question from our very own Dr. Vic Copan. Okay. And uh, <laughs> sorry, Vic. I'm girding yeah. up my loins. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, well, it might have been, it, it, it's probably from Vic and Kathy. Uh, but okay. Great question. Um, it's from Kathy. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> <Just> for clarifying, <laughs> I see you guys. Um, this is a great question. Um, it says, What are the dangers of not letting women serve in their ministry leadership roles? Like, mm. what, what are the dangers of if we say no to a woman? Of uh, mm -hmm. the calling she feel like God is placing on her life mm -hmm. because of her gender. Yeah, um, I think there's an obvious danger in that we have. Uh, I don't want to overstate this, but but maybe it needs to be overstated. If if God calls someone to a particular task and we say no, you can't do it, we're working against God, mm. and I think that that's a serious thing. Um, that we need to consider carefully. Um, but there are also, I think, detriments to the community itself. Um, 
when, uh, so I'll use, I don't, sorry, Pastor Trevor, I'll use you as an example, but sometimes bits of stories are heard differently by women than men. So the fact that some of the early Christian martyrs gave birth in prison um, is, a, is a detail that a, that a woman might be, not necessarily, but might be more likely to, to notice and remember. Um, I think that, that um, all people who are being transformed by God's spirit have particular giftings that uh, complement their personality traits and things like that. And so if we say that, um, and I don't know the percentages on this exactly, but we say, if we say that 60% or 65% of the church is not allowed to minister, mm -hmm. we are robbing the church community of all of those gifts that God has given mm -hmm. um, to, the, to those women. So that's a pretty broad answer, Kathy, but that's maybe what I would say. Yeah, and, um, I, uh, and I, so I think, that's, I think that's an awesome prophetic word for us that you know, we will be kind of going against the work of the Lord, resisting him in some ways. And I, I also think, gosh, how um, from uh, women colleagues of mine who are also pastors, just how discouraging it is and how much of an uphill mm -hmm. battle so many of them have had to fight and so many prejudices so many of them have had to work against. Um, it's incredibly discouraging for the person who's mm -hmm. called by the Lord. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, last question, then I have a question for you. Okay. Um, so uh, we have another person who wrote, uh, how much education... Um, uh, how much education do you think women need to be able to be? Now, so here's where there's a little bit of nuance to this question. So feel free to kind of adjust the question, okay? Okay. Um, sure, how sure. much education do you think women need to be able to be teachers over men, such as even a lead pastor? Mm -hmm. And so, um, do, you know, speak to that question in its entirety. Go for sure. it. Sure. So different denominations have actually have different published guidelines on this, right? So um, I think um, in the church that I grew up in, no education was required for anyone, male or female. Well, actually, female men, women weren't allowed to do it, but there was no education required for men, only a, a desire and a calling. Um, but other denominations will say you need to have a certain level of, of schooling and things like that. I think that one, I do think that it's, that education is important, but here's another contextual difference, that sometimes when we hear education today, we think seminary education. But really what I mean is a knowledge of sound biblical doctrine. And that doesn't have to happen in a seminary. In our context, a lot of people, women included, have the opportunity to go to seminary. And when God puts that in your way, uh, in your path, I think that, that it's res a responsible and faithful thing to take advantage of that opportunity. Mm -hmm. But um, I, would, I would be very cautious to say that God could not call and I would not say that, that it's impossible for God to call people without any formal education, right. uh, just those who have a sound knowledge of biblical doctrine. Yeah, good yeah. word. Yeah, and um, to the um, to pursue out that question there, I would say in our, in our tradition, the amount of education a woman needs to be in, uh, teachers over men and to be a lead pastor is the exact same mm -hmm. as a man. It's the same thing. Yeah. It, it's, it's not, well, how much do I need to be over man? It's, nope, it's the requirements are the same. It's equal. Um, and it's maybe not so much to be to be over anyone. I don't think that was the spirit of the question, but yeah. but with the idea of being equipped to lead and to shepherd. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. All right. So can I ask you a question for me? Sure. Yes. Okay. Um, this is something that um, several of our um, 
so Dale and I, we are, we are obviously supportive of women in ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Dale's uh, wife, Beth, she has a degree from seminary. Dale's daughter has a degree from seminary. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and my wife have the exact same degree from Asbury Theological Seminary. My wife feels called into ministry. She, we're in a season with little kids right now, but she totally mm-hmm. feels called into that. And uh, so we're obviously supportive of that. Um, and sometimes our church, we unintentionally look like we don't believe in that because the two elders assigned to our church both happen to be males. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, we unintentionally sometimes communicate a message that we don't believe that well, we absolutely do. Mm-hmm. What would you say to us of what are some things we could do as a church to better support women in ministry? And how, what would you say mm-hmm. to, to us as community of hope? What are some ways where we could lift this up and be more supportive? I think, uh, so as a person who comes from a tradition where um, uh, women's role in ministry was not encouraged, what I would say, and, I've, and I have only felt encouragement from folks at, at Community of Hope, and I'm just so thankful for, um, for, your, for this community and for the way that you support women uh, in that way. But I would say that the small things matter. Hmm. Um, so uh, someone said, you know, I, it's, it's someone said I teach Sunday school or I teach Bible study and it's good to know that we're valid. Um, and so I think that sometimes we assume that women think that, hmm. but it's important to say it, you know, and to, appre- to appreciate the work that women do out, out loud, you know, to, to actually say it. And so I would say that small things like that matter a good bit. Um, and then also, and again, I've, I've not experienced this at Community of Hope at all, but um, something that I, I experience in the broader Christian community sometimes is that um, I think that words are, are very important. And sometimes we reveal um, some sort of subconscious value systems by, by the words that we use. And so I think that just being conscious of, of what you say and how you say it is, is really important. Um, and, and you all, if you you appreciate the work that a woman is doing, that's going to come out naturally in, in what you say and how you respond. And so um, just from my personal perspective, I would say those small things matter, uh, matter a lot. Mm. Yeah. Good word. Good word. Um, well, um, let's see here. It looks like uh, we are one minute over time. We did it. Boom. We got it. Okay, great. <laughs> We got all, I think just about every, some of the questions, uh, we didn't get to all of them, but a lot of them we really did. And so, um, so let's all go ahead and give a, a round of applause for, for Kathy. And thank you for teaching us and sharing with us your wisdom. Um, I'm somebody who's, you know, I read a lot about this topic and believe in this, and I learned a lot of new things tonight. And so thank you so very much. Um, Thanks for having context, me. Oh my gosh, thank you. Some of the context of, of the, the Greek, that and how it's translated i've never even i've that's all new to me in some of those so thank you so very much um so uh so everybody we're so glad um kathy thank you for sharing with us we're so glad that you're a part of community hope we're all looking forward to get to know you better thanks and we're excited to hear from your husband next week Mm -hmm. and we're going to be learning uh, from nathan right from dr nathan maxwell Mm -hmm. that's right and we're going to be learning about uh how to go through the psalms Oh man, uh, this is going to be a fantastic thing. And uh, the praying through the Psalms, even the really difficult ones, if you've ever come across a really troubling Psalm to where it's not all mm-hmm. the Lord is my shepherd. There's some real feelings inside of the Psalms. 
And uh, so um, you were sharing with me that's some of your husband's favorite parts of, of the song. So <laughs> we're, we're looking forward to learning throughout. So make sure you register for that. And uh, we'll see you next week. And we'll be posting the recording of this on Thursday online. So thanks, everybody. All right, can we give one more, one more hand for Dr. Maxwell? Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, everyone. All right, God bless you, everybody. Thanks for coming to Hope University. We'll see you next week. And thanks again, Kathy. It was wonderful. Thank You're you so welcome. much for blessing Absolutely. our church. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye.